How do physicians become broadcasters? How do physicians educate others about health and health information? What about people who are interested in expanding their healthcare knowledge and use the field of communications? We're going to talk about all these issues coming up. Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me is Dr. Tom Linden. Dr. Linden teaches courses in medical journalism for undergraduate and graduate students and directs the Medical and Science Journalism Program, one of the nation's first master's programs in medical journalism. He is the author of the New York Times Reader, Health and Medicine, published in 2010. The book is a compendium of more than 50 stories from the Times, featuring condensed interviews with Times reporters and a how-to manual for aspiring medical and health reporters. Dr. Tom Linden has a special interest in medical cyberspace and is co-author of Dr. Tom Linden's Guide to Online Medicine. Dr. Linden is a former president of the National Association of Physician Broadcasters. He has a long history in broadcasting. In fact, when I first met Tom, it was back in the early 90s, late 80s. He was working with Lifetime Medical Television. At that time, uh, he was an anchor. He was co-anchor of a program called Physician's Journal Update. And in his broadcasting career, he actually was the first health and science correspondent and a business news anchor for CNBC. But now he's at the University of North Carolina where he is training a lot of people about health and health broadcasting information. And what do you see as the big changes, Tom? And when you look at this right now for broadcasters in medicine and for doctors who are listening, what's going on in today's world? Brian, it's a thrill to talk with you on your radio program and, and to hear your voice. But but I think the web is really changing everything. Uh, anybody can be a publisher or a broadcaster now, and so it's really opened up a lot of avenues for all kinds of people who are interested in, in health and medicine, including physicians. You know, I know you're in demand as a public speaker, and you speak about different issues, and you teach students. And one of the things when I talk, I, I talk about how in the old days, and I call them the old days, you had your you know NBC, ABC, CBS, and we would be given stories, and we had an embargo. And we had to wait a certain time to release a study and talk about it, and you had to go through editors and producers. Now things are instant. I mean, right away, people can be on Twitter. They can download something. They can. Are there dangers associated with that? Have you seen it as a positive from your perspective? Well, I mean, there's certainly dangers if uh, patients, uh, non-medical people, follow what they read on the web without consulting reputable sources. And that's the danger, that, that you could get misinformation. But at the same time, there's a lot of good information. So if you're a smart a user of the web and and really know where to go to corroborate information it's a great resource and it's not just patients but it's physicians who obviously are using the web all the time to find out about the latest treatments uh, new studies to uh, validate what they're doing in their practice when you look at sites and places that you might recommend for physicians that you use yourself, are there certain places you turn to that you think are reliable? I guess I'm very fortunate that uh, I'm associated with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill because I have access to their entire electronic uh, journal database. So I can go to the journals where the articles that I may read about in summary form uh, are published, so I can actually go to the to the source and and read articles to find out uh, in my own mind whether I think they're valid or not. For example, uh, I'm 
the, the medical anchor for Journal Watch. It's NEJM, Journal Watch Audio. It's a publication of the Mass Medical Society. And I'm going to be doing uh, a couple of interviews uh, tomorrow for, for that program. And so, for example, there's an article from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology about nuisance bleeding with prolonged dual antiplatelet therapy after acute myocardial infarction. So I could read a summary, but I'm actually going to read the entire article. So I downloaded it uh, in a PDF file, and, and, and that's great that I can go to the source and evaluate the credibility information myself. And any physician can do that if they have access to uh, electronic databases, which I assume many do. Well, you know, it's interesting about you, and you could probably tell if you're listening to Dr. Linden, you can tell by the timbre of his voice and the way he speaks that he's certainly had a, a history in broadcasting. But you were making it, so to speak, as an anchor, as, in, as a non-physician, just as a pure play. I'm out there being a professional broadcaster. You were working in that capacity. And how different was that than coming in and, and broadcasting as a physician, as someone who obviously is going to be presenting things from that standpoint? Well, I mean, I was when I started uh, at CNBC in 1989 with actually the launch of CNBC, I was both uh, the medical reporter and an environmental reporter. So sometimes I wore the hat of a, of a physician reporter and other times I was a, uh, just a regular reporter. And then also... Uh, they stuck me on the the Money Wheel anchor desk uh, starting with the first day on the air, and I believe it was March or April of 1989. I knew nothing about uh, Wall Street and uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and I was interviewing these these analysts, and it, it was scary. I have to say it was really scary, uh, you know, finding out what a long bond is in the middle of an interview. <laughs> so uh, when I was doing medical stories, you know, I had – I had uh, medical school under my belt. I had practiced as a psychiatrist for five years, so I, I, I knew what I was talking about. But when it came to uh, economic reporting, I was just uh, flying by the seat of my pants. So that, that was scary. But what I've done for the most part for the last 20 years has been either reporting on medicine or teaching uh, others how to report on medicine and science. And uh, I, I find that... Uh, just very satisfying because I know that there are a lot of people who are interested in the field and there are also a lot of people who want good information and I feel like uh, uh, I've kind of found my sweet spot there. Consider yourself fortunate. I think back in 1989, I was watching the money wheel and investing, not knowing what I'm doing. So you're probably, you're probably <laughs> well, you were the only one. <laughs> you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. I'm speaking with Dr. Tom Linden, and we're talking about a lot of issues. And one of the things I do want to bring up, because you're obviously teaching people about how to use the media and the good and the bad. What are some tips you have for physicians who are out there? I mean, there's probably a lot who are thinking, you know, I'd like to use this for my practice. I could somehow promote myself or promote something I do or have a website, whatever. What do you recommend for them? Well, before we even talk about using the media, I'd like to talk about just person-to-person -person communication, which uh, you're obviously very good at, Brian. I can just tell by, by talking with you because you, you listen to what the other person's saying. And, and that's, that's really the first tip, I would say, is when you are a communicator, whether it's person-to-person -person or in the media, it's really important to be able to listen, to hear what the other person's saying, and to understand what their concerns are. 
And in order to do that, you have to stop talking sometimes and just listen. In addition, when you do start talking, it's really important to be able to speak plain English. Very difficult for all kinds of professionals, whether you're a financial analyst or, or a physician, but you have to be able to get beyond the jargon and speak in plain English that people can understand. And that, I think, is one of the biggest problems that physicians encounter, uh, not only uh, in the media, but in office situations. So, so that's the first thing. Learn how to speak plain English. You know, don't use big phrases like myocardial infarction when you can say heart attack or meniscus when you say cartilage. So translate all of this medical terminology. And we all know as physicians, we know probably uh, thousands of words that the general public does not understand. So why use those words? It really separates us from average people. For example, I was just preparing for a story tomorrow, and uh, there's the word uh, pruritus. Why not just say itching? Mm -hmm. You know, that bugs me. Why, 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 do you have, why do you have to use a word when there's an English language word that's just as good, probably a lot better than everybody understands? It jumps out at you, too. I was on rounds today, and I was with my resident, and we were talking to somebody who had an irregular heartbeat, and the cardiologist was there, and we were deciding whether to send the patient home, whether or not. And I said, hey, listen, we have to decide. This is an observation patient. What do you think? He said, hey, I'll come in. So I went in with him. And, and he was talking to the patient, and I'm not usually with that cardiologist. He says, you have what I call an FBH. And I was an FBH. You know what that is? He says, no. And he says, it's a funny beating heart. And then he went off in that approach, and it was so relaxing to hear him speak in that way. He talked to the patient in a common sense way. The patient got it, was part of the decision. He said, I'm going to go look at that, that ultrasound of your heart we took. I'll be right back. And, and, and you're right, that kind of communication when somebody's sitting in a bed, if they hear, you know, you have atrial fibrillation and we're concerned whether or not there might be some ischemia associated with it, all of a sudden it, it makes them more tense. Yeah, absolutely. And and that that kind of style will carry over to the media. So if you are a physician who either wants to get into the media as a as a expert guest or even become a medical reporter, you have to be able to do that all the time. Every sentence, almost every word you have to speak in in uh common lay language that people understand. You have to put things in terms that people can uh, relate to. So that's really important. And, and remember that as a journalist, your job is really to tell stories. And the story you just told me, from that I, I infer that the physician knew how to tell stories in ways that people can relate to. Really important. And when you look at that and you take those skills, how do you teach people who might not be comfortable at speaking normally to do that? That's, a, that's a, a good question, and I don't have a ready answer for that, but you do have to be conscious of what you're saying. In other words, you can't be on automatic pilot. You have to check in with the, in a one-to-one -one situation with the person you're speaking to and, and just find out, do you understand what I'm saying? And uh, one good way is to have that person repeat back to you what they heard. So if, if you're speaking to a patient and you explain what, their particular medical situation is, and they can't explain it back to you in a sensible way, that means you've failed 
to communicate with that individual. And so it just takes a lot of practice. And when, when you're going on the air, you don't get that opportunity for immediate feedback. So you have to be really, really diligent in uh, looking if you're writing a script, what you're writing makes sense. Uh, you can check it out with other people. Uh, if, you, if you're being interviewed, let's say, in a live radio or television interview like this one, you have to really consider who your audience is. That's really important. Are you speaking to other physicians? Are you speaking to the lay public? Are you, are you speaking to a, a mixture of people? And you'll have to adjust your vocabulary and, and the level uh, of your uh, conversation accordingly. You know, Tom, um, your background, and, and people might be surprised, but it's in adult and child psychiatry. You did residency training. Has that helped you in your career in, in teaching and communicating? It does. I mean, it, it, it helps me in as much as uh, when I went through psychiatric residency training at the Menninger Foundation, it was very oriented toward uh, talking therapy. And so it helped me to be a good listener. And I think that's probably what I glean from it the most is that it did improve my my listening skills in terms of kind of analyzing the other person or trying to figure out where they're coming from. Yes, that that's helpful. I mean, I, I think I, I I can pick up things as a result of my professional training that, that is useful, but, you know, I'm not really shrinking people when I'm talking to them. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just, trying, I'm just trying to hear where they're coming from and trying to meet them at their level. You know, one thing I like to do in primary care today, and those who listen to it know, I tell stories and try to make it fun, like we're kind of talking about here, and there's an experience. I may have shared this story with you, Tom, and if I did, I'll, I'll share it with others, or if not, you can hear it the first time. I think it was 1995, the O.J. Simpson chase. Uh, I was working at Fox in Philadelphia. You were working in, were you in San Francisco? I'm not sure exactly. I, I was at Fox in Los Angeles. Uh, Fox in Los Angeles. So we are, obviously, everyone's scrambling, and they're doing coverage, and I find myself on the anchor desk with the two anchors because what was going to happen was I was going to comment about what was going through O.J. Simpson's mind at that point. And to bring it back, that was a very historic time for those who didn't live through it. But one of the things about it was that O.J. Simpson, at that point, no one thought of him as they might now. He was uh, just a television celebrity football hero, and this was seemed like an unbelievable situation that he could be in this slow car chase. Well, to make a very long story short... Um, I'm on set, and they swing to uh, Larry King, who was a CNN affiliate for us. We, we, were, we, were, we were sitting an affiliate. They go to Larry King. We're just sitting there watching. And you came on, and we're being interviewed for your commentary, which I was really happy to hear because I thought, well, good, I'll pick up some points from him so when they swing it back to me. And the two anchors at my TV station said that they're going to run to the bathroom now because they'd been on the air for so long. And they left. I'm just sitting there minding my own business. And all of a sudden, you finish. Larry King says, let's bring it back to our local affiliates. And all of a sudden, I'm there. And I'm saying something to the effect of, whatever you do, don't rush the car. They should not rush the car. This is a situation where they should leave OJ alone. This is very important. And I'm doing this. So I remember after it was all over, my father says, that's amazing you do that. I said, I, I didn't know that. It reminded me of CNBC. So I, perhaps they should have rushed a car. I don't know. I'm not a hostage negotiator. I was filling time. And it was one of the, it, w it was a unique situation where here I was talking, you were talking, and we were thrust through the media into a very unique situation that probably uh, is, is, you know, one of a kind. 
Yeah, you know, I'm, I might be hesitant to do that now, uh, 18 years later, uh, because uh, I think I appreciate how wrong you can be when you're you're trying to analyze things in, in a live fashion using a psychiatrist or a physician's perspective. But yeah, I was doing it then. In fact, the interesting part of this story is that uh, I was actually doing this from the living room floor of the house I was renting in Malibu at the time, and I was home with my then one-year-old daughter, and I called the, the Fox Los Angeles anchors and said, hey, you know, I think I might be able to comment on this. And so I, th- I thought I was just talking to the Fox uh, anchors, and then I'm, I'm channel switching or flipping while I'm talking to them, and I flip to CNN, and I see that CNN's carrying it. And I go, oh, my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's something that's very interesting, and that is probably where we can wrap it up. That is the voice of experience, because I think you and I both in that same situation would say, you know what? What we should do is get some more facts before we go on. And that might be, for another conversation someday, one of the problems we have now in the media because there are so many stations and so many people trying to grab that limelight, they are willing to say anything sometimes. And younger and younger people with very little uh, experience are making choices, and, and that might be a, a danger, especially when it comes to health care. Yeah, well, I would say beware of the armchair expert, whether or not the armchair expert has an MD or a, or a law degree after their name. Uh, there are just too many people who are throwing out their own opinions, and sometimes for the wrong reasons. Tom, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really went fast. We could have talked forever, but I really appreciate it. It's always great talking to you, Brian. Take care. Great. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash primarycare today to download the podcast and learn more about this series. Thank you once again for listening.